Into our hearts, into our hearts, come into our hearts, Lord Jesus. Come in today, come in to stay. Come into our hearts, Lord Jesus. With that prayer, we'll seek to turn this studio into a sanctuary. My name is Hal Brady, and I'm so delighted you've joined me for this ministry tonight. I trust that both the message and the music will be a blessing. Would you hear now, please, the reading of God's Word? It comes from two places, 
from Acts and from John's Gospel. Hear the word of the Lord. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them. And a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. And now we go to John's Gospel, chapter 16. But I have said these things to you, so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you about them. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. Yet none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father, and you will see me no longer. About judgment, because the ruler of this world has been condemned. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Join me, please, for a moment of prayer. O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, which art our strength and our redeemer. Amen. The theme of the 17th World Methodist Conference, held in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, was appropriately Holy Spirit, giver of life. The conference logo featured the Christ of Rio with his arms outstretched, standing in the midst of a descending dove. Truly, that was a powerful, powerful logo. Down from the mountain, the Holy Spirit brings Jesus, the Redeemer, into the lives of humankind and indeed into the lives of all humankind. Now, I would remind you that that logo is more than a powerful symbol. That logo is, in fact, a reality. It is a reality upon which the church itself is built, and we call it Pentecost. Pentecost, as you know, was when God reintroduced himself to Jesus' followers. Prior to his departure, Jesus had promised his disciples a comforter. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, he said, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus' disciples would not have to face the Christian life alone. They would not be alone in their struggle. Jesus gave them this promise. He said, you are to go into Jerusalem, into that upper room, and you are to stay there until you are endued with power from on high. Then it happened. Pentecost. Pentecost. What happened first in that upper room and in the temple courts was that the living God had an encounter with these disciples and also that living God filled them with his own presence and spirit. The early disciples never forgot it. It was a life-changing experience, and it changed them forever, and it also brought the church into being what we call the birthday of the church. The late Albert Outlaw stated that the Holy Spirit is not God in the absence of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is God making Jesus present again and again and again. Pentecost, that glad day when God reintroduced himself to his disciples, that glad day when God gave himself to his church and the church was born. What I want to do now is think of the church in terms of Pentecost, in terms of the Holy Spirit, 
operating in and through the lives of God's people in the church. At this point, we need to read again part of our scripture. So I want you to listen to this 16th chapter of John, beginning with the 8th verse. And when he comes, he will prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment, about sin because they do not believe in me, about righteousness because I'm going to the Father and you will see me no longer, about judgment because the rule of this world has been condemned. Sometimes when we read this, we think that the Holy Spirit is going to come directly upon the world and convince these people of sin and righteousness and judgment. But by reading it that way, we're reading it incorrectly. We have to read it with verse 7 in front. Listen, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes to you, when he comes to you, he will convince the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit does not directly come to the world. The Holy Spirit comes to his believers. And through these believers, the church and the Christians, the world is convinced of sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, there are several things that the world ought to see in the church. The first thing is that the matter of life is Jesus. The matter of life is Jesus. As the late Roy Stedman, scholar pastor, said, the world ought to be convinced of sin because it doesn't believe in Jesus. If the church had not preached Jesus Christ, then the world would have forgotten that he came and that he lived among us. And that is precisely what the world wants to do. The world wants to forget Jesus Christ. So the task of the church is to continually keep Jesus Christ before the world. And that requires these things. First of all, that the church keep Jesus consistently before the church. Did you hear that? That the church keep Jesus consistently before the church. Now that sounds like it doesn't need to be said, but it does need to be said and it needs to be affirmed. The late Bill Henson was successful pastor of the First United Methodist Church of Houston, Texas for 18 years. One day he heard that a group of people in the church were planning to leave the church. That was unusual because that church was growing fast. And so after the worship service one Sunday, Bill asked these people why they were planning to leave. And one of them said, Bill, you just keep preaching Jesus, Jesus, and Jesus. Jesus is just everything to you. They meant that as criticism. But Bill Henson knew that it was the other way. He took it as music to his ears, and that's the way he should have taken it. Let me tell you something. I believe that the most critical question in the world today is what the church thinks about Jesus Christ. Whether you know it or not, there's a battle going on in Christian circles, and that is whether Jesus is simply Lord of the Christians only or Jesus is Lord of all. I happen to believe Jesus is Lord of all, and so I want to be counted with that group. Now listen, here's something you need to hear. Bishop Will Willimon, in his book, Thus We Believe, begins, in Jesus Christ, God appeared to us and was acting for us in a rich array of works, friend, Lord, Savior, priest, king, sacrifice, and others. But every age of church history shows that the people of God have a tendency to reduce the work of Christ to whatever office is most congenial to that age. The Wesleys, however, emphasized a rich, violent view of Christ in all of his offices, Thus, Wesley warned his preachers against preaching a too limited view of Christ, reducing the rich experience of Christ to a few slogans. That is a danger 
of the modern church today. Ruth Seabury was a missionary to India. She described a conversation she had with a Hindu social worker. And the Hindu social worker asked her one day, do Christians know, for the most part, what they have? She said, what are you talking about? He said, every religion has a God. Every religion has an altar. Every religion believes in sacrifice. But only Christians have a Savior. The Scripture says, when the Holy Spirit comes, He will magnify and glorify Jesus Christ. He will magnify and glorify Jesus Christ. And so, that is the first thing. The church must keep Jesus before the church. And then secondly, if the church is to keep Jesus continually before the church, it's got to share Jesus. Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, even so I send you. Years ago, there was an internationally known Pentecostalist by the name of David Duplessis. He was invited by a group of ecumenical Americans to come speak to them. He spoke for 75 minutes to their rapt attention. After that, there were questions and answers. Some of them said, I think that what you're saying is the same thing we're saying. But there is a difference. Can you help us? He said, the truth is, I think the truth you preach is in ice. The truth I preach is on fire. Now, here comes Pentecost. God never gives us a task that he doesn't give us the power to perform and to conduct. Here comes Pentecost. It says that God has given us Pentecostal power for a Pentecostal task. Let me ask you a question. One time, the Lord asked Peter this question. This was a noble question. He didn't ask him, are you ready to throw in your leadership with the church? He didn't ask him, are you speaking these various tongues? He didn't ask him, to whom are you going to be accountable? He asked him one question. He said, do you love me? Do you love me? And that's the question he asked us today. And my question to you is, do we love him enough to share him with the world? Do we love him enough to share him with the world? And then one other thing here. If the church is to keep Jesus consistently before the world, it will have to have a courageous witness in its mission. There was a pastor named Robert D. Tuttle. He said that he was invited to come over to Adelaide, Australia, to preach for a week. He went over there and he preached for a week, and he said he preached Jesus Christ. He said at the end of that week, he had to leave to go back to Sydney to get his flight back to the States. It was a 12-hour trip. He said on Monday morning, he was sitting in the airport waiting on his plane back to the States, and he received a telephone call from the pastor of the Adelaide Church. He said, I've just got to tell you before you go what happened in church yesterday. He said the dean of the University of Adelaide came up to the front of the sanctuary, and he said, we've experienced the living Christ this week. And he said, I want to know how many of you are willing to come up here and place your lives on the line as being people who would share the message of Christ to the city of Adelaide. Well, he said, in a few minutes, one man came up. He went up to the front, and he talked. And another minute, a lady came up, and she testified. And then a young man came up, and he talked. And then one by one, every person in the church got up and came up and testified and stood at the church together, pledging themselves to be these missionaries for Christ into the city of Adelaide. And then this preacher said, you know, I didn't preach last Sunday. He said, the church preached. And then they went out to serve. They went out to serve. And then secondly, the second thing the world ought to see when it looks at the church is righteousness. Righteousness. Jesus says, because I am going to the Father, you will see me no longer. Now, 
What in the world did the world see in Jesus? Righteousness. The world needs to see the same thing in us that it saw in him. It needs to see righteousness. And what is righteousness? It is a different kind of behavior. In a world of unrighteousness, in a world of confusion, we Christians are what we call table people. At the table, lives are transformed in the breaking of the bread. In the breaking of the bread, sin is transformed into forgiveness. Conflict is transformed into reconciliation. Darkness is transformed into light. Despair is transformed into hope. Hatred is transformed into love. When we begin to practice this faith of ours, we begin to practice it along the lines of Jesus and not on the divisiveness of the world. It makes a tremendous difference out there. Now, as far as Methodism is concerned, John Wesley believed that there are three rules that express God's righteousness in the world. These three rules are based on the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, and you find these three rules actually in our book of discipline. The first rule is this, do no harm, do no harm. Brenning Manning, he's dead now, he was a Catholic priest and a writer. He said when he went through the Sleepy Hollow Village off the Jordan River, the Hudson River, excuse me, in New York, he said the guide only said one thing, he said, be gentle to the lambs. He said because the lambs won't come to you if you frighten them. Now, if I'm going to live a life of doing no harm, it means that I have to be on guard, that I don't hurt other people, that I don't do things that's going to injure someone else or injure this creation. It also means that I am going to commit my life to a life of healing and not hurt, to a life of wholeness and not division, to a life of help. I'm going to commit my life to doing good. I'm going to commit my life to not doing harm. And then secondly, doing good. Secondly, doing good. It's important that we understand this whole principle of doing good. If you're going to live a life of doing good, you're going to live a proactive life. A proactive life. You're not going to wait for somebody to ask you if they'll help you do something. You're going to help them anyway. You're not going to wait for somebody to ask you to see about the injustices of the world. You're going to start working on those injustices anyway. Let me give you a lighter note of this. I have two little granddaughters. They're red-headed girls. They live in Atlanta. At the time of this incident, Glenn was nine and Ann Austin was seven. I remember Ann Austin came to me. Remember, she's seven. She came to me and, he, and she said, in your last book, I noticed that you said something about Glenn. Why didn't you say something about me? And I said, Ann Austin, you were not born yet. But then I said, but be sure in the next book, I'll mention your name. You see, it was an attempt of doing good. Now, doing good on a big scale, on a big scale, was pushed forward when Jesus reached for that towel and basin and he washed his disciples' feet. And the same thing will happen to us when we begin to wash the feet of everybody else, when we become servants. The same thing will happen to us. And so we need to lift up to the world. The church must show them righteousness, a different way of living. There's a young man named Kent. He's 12 years old. He was born in a, in a cemetery in Manila. It was a church, a congregation that built their church right by the cemetery to help these poor people that gave him hope, that gave him all the hope that he could muster. They gave him food and clothes and shelter and opportunity. So the world 
needs to see in the church righteousness, a different standard of behavior, and it will if we make observation of this point. And then thirdly, here's another thing. The world needs to see in the church judgment. The world needs to see in the church judgment. Listen to this. On the cross of Christ, evil was defeated and judged and made dead. It was defeated and judged and made dead. Jesus says, because the rule of this world has been condemned. Now, the judgment of which the Spirit convicts the world is his multifaceted spiritual blindness, a blindness that can be seen no better than the way the world treats Jesus Christ at the moment. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of its false judgment because it is the triumph of Christ that we understand that the rule of this world is defeated. And the world desperately needs to know that. When the world looks at the church, it needs to see a battle going on, a battle looming and a battle going on now between the world's viewpoint and Jesus' kingdom of God. And for sure, the kingdom of God is going to win. There's an old illustration about a church that was seen after the Berlin Wall fell and the church was standing. It had a sound out front. It simply says, the lamb wins. The lamb wins. Now, to understand how this is going to come out, the lamb winning, we need to understand that people in the world need to see how it's going to come out in the lives of the church people who are living today. In all of our lives, for instance, they need to see that an alcoholic is no longer an alcoholic. They need to see that someone who is offended can forgive somebody. They need to see that people who are ill can rise above their illness, whether they're healed or not. They need to see a helping hand. They need to see a set toward walking the second mile. They need to see all of these things, and they can. Dr. Peter Gomes was a chaplain at Harvard. He said one weekend he was going to London to preach. He left on Saturday and was going to preach on Sunday morning. He said when they got out about halfway across the Atlantic Ocean, a turbulence came up, and so the pilot said, keep your seatbelts fastened. So he was more concerned about his sermon than he was the storm. So he simply picked out his sermon notes, and he picked up his Bible, and he began to read. A lady observed he was doing that. As the turbulence became stronger, he began to read more intently, and the lady finally looked at him and said, do you know something I should know? Well, to answer that question, we all know something she should know. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convince the world of sin and righteousness and judgment when the Holy Spirit comes to you and to me. Pentecost says the Holy Spirit has already come to you and to me. So what is our witness going to be in the world? That is the question. What is our witness going to be in the world? Is it going to be a witness that goes against sin, a witness of righteousness, and a witness of judgment? Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this day and the opportunity of proclaiming this word. We ask, O oh God, that your Holy Spirit will come and touch each and every one of us at the point of our need. We thank you, O oh God, for those who are listening and watching. We ask that you would bless them, each one, and meet them at the point of their need. And we'll be sure to give you the praise and the glory. It's in your name. Amen. Thank you so very much for joining me in this broadcast. And remember, our purpose our purpose is to proclaim the message in a biblical, vital, and relevant way. And our purpose is to lift up Christ, is to encourage people, and is to remind them that there is still God. Good night. 
Thank you for listening to Dr. Hal Brady, whose television broadcast is seen weekly in Atlanta on the Atlanta Interfaith Broadcasters Network. Dr. Brady's sermons are also available online and ministry updates are posted on Facebook. With your help, we are able to share the gospel online and on the air. So please consider a donation to Hal Brady Ministries. Donations can be mailed to Hal Brady Ministries, Inc., Post Office Box 1367, Decatur, Georgia, 30031, or you can give securely online at halbradyministries.com. We are grateful for your prayers and support and hope you'll continue to partner with us. If you have any prayer requests, please be in touch. Thank you.